The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Well, good morning, everyone. If you're feeling like a little tight, a little crowded just a few minutes ago, this is why, okay? And you have plenty of uh, space now, hopefully, to spread out and get comfortable as our children head off. You have a lot of kids in this church. (laughs) So uh, as they're heading out the door, you can turn to Mark chapter 14. We might have to hustle a little bit this morning. It's a busy morning, uh, a lot going on, a lot of good things, and, and a lot of change. Uh, one of the changes, obviously, the, the sanctuary is changing, and, and there will be more, um, because you know how it is when you get some new piece of furniture or something, and then you start to look around, and you're like, well, now that we got this couch, we need the rug, and now that we got the rug, we need a big TV, right? Right, everyone? Yeah? No? Some of you are the ones that do that. Who here are the ones that like to change everything in your homes all the time? Yeah, the rest of you don't like that, and uh, change can be difficult, especially when it's inflicted on us uh, by someone else. But there's an exciting change that I want to tell you about, an additional one to all this, and that is that one of our longtime elders in our church, uh, Mike Osterout, is going to be retiring from the Pentagon, and I'm taking that opportunity, and we as the church are taking that opportunity to uh, take him to work here. And so he is going to be coming on our staff in a pastoral administrative capacity. He's going to be overseeing the operations of the church part-time. And so if you have really difficult things that that you want to bring by my desk, you can stop by Mike's on the way there. (laughs) Mike and Deb, would you stand uh, right now just so we can uh, recognize you? I can tell you I've known Mike for a long time and Deb for a long time, and there's no one better suited to that, that role. And so we're really excited in September to have Mike come on board and to begin working here in the church. And he's already, when scripture describes an elder, an overseer, a shepherd, a pastor, those terms are, are very interchangeable in scripture. In fact, they're used as synonyms in the same sentence in scripture. And that is Mike. He's an elder. He's an overseer. He is a shepherd among us. And so we're excited to bring him on as a pastor in our church. Did you all turn to Mark chapter 14? Well, that's great. I'm actually going to read from Mark chapter 8 for just a moment here. Uh, This is a a, a couple of verses we looked at back in November where we saw Jesus. He asked this question to his disciples. His disciples are his close followers. And he asked them this question, which I believe is, is the most significant question that you can ask or answer in your own life. Because the answer to this question, it really directs everything. It determines far more than you can comprehend because the the answer to this question will reveal what you believe about where you came from and and where you're going and the meaning of your life and the morality that you live by. All these incredibly important things flow out of the answer to this question. Where did I come from? How will I live a, a moral life? What is the meaning of this life? And where do I go after this life? In Mark 8, 27, it says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? That's not the, the question. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others said, Elijah. These are the things that people think about Jesus and others, one of the prophets. And then he asked them this. He says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who is this Jesus? Who do you say that he is? 
I think there's this notion in our society that, that all religions are essentially worshiping the same God, that we're all climbing the same mountain and we're going to, to meet at the, the summit of that mountain and, and we are going to find out that it, it was the very same God there at the top. And what I can tell you is, is that Christianity claims that that is absolutely not true. Why? Because we, as Christians, have a drastically different view of Jesus than the other religions of the world. Is he a, is he a historical figure who his followers just uh, decided to, to create these legends about these miracles, as some of the contemporary historical critics would say? Is that who he is? Is he um, a deified human Someone born from, from a man who became a god and then had a child with a human on earth, as the Mormons would say. Is that who he is? No, no. Is he the great prophet, Isa, of Islam? Who, who though a miracle worker, one who's going to, to return in some sense to judge the world, held no divinity and actually never was crucified and therefore never raised from the dead. Is that who Jesus is? Is Jesus just one of the many manifestations of the supreme being of, of Hinduism? Is that who he is? Is he a holy man? Is he a great teacher? Is he a madman? Is he a, a revolutionary? Who is Jesus? And why, unlike every other religion of the world, do Christians bow down and worship him? Why? Why, two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And he didn't, he didn't look very godlike in that setting, did he? He is distressed. He's sweating great drops of, of blood. He's crying out in anguish about what awaits him in the cross, the suffering that he will endure. He's shaken. And he's praying that he wouldn't have to suffer. He is praying to God that this cup of the Father's wrath would be taken from him. Jesus, like us, he was fully man. He was, he was weak in his humanity, tempted, fragile, distressed. And when facing his death, he feels what many of us would feel facing that prospect. He feels desperate. Is there any other way? Is there any other way? And yet what he does is he bows to the Father's will and he stands with courage in the garden. And remember this, he walks toward his betrayer, an armed mob who are coming to take him, arrest him, try him, and kill him. Why does he walk with courage towards that? Jesus is fully man, and yet he is no ordinary man. Who is this Jesus? Let's look back just very briefly at the betrayal. I love this detail in the Gospel of John, so, so I, we might not be able to return to this for a couple years, so I wanted to, to hit it while I could. In John chapter 18, it says that, that the mob is approaching Jesus, and his betrayer Judas is stepping in front of them. He steps up to Jesus to greet him with a kiss so they know who to arrest. And this demonically inspired mob that wants to, to take Jesus into, the, into captivity. They're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And it says this in John 18, three. It says, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward and he said to them, who do you seek? Listen to this. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And when he said to them, I am he, this is what I want you to notice. It says they drew back and fell to the ground. <laughs> it's quite a reaction to just someone saying, it's me, right? Why? Because Jesus is different. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Because Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus is more than a man. We've seen throughout the gospels that, that demonic forces recoil at his words. 
And here, as this mob is approaching Jesus, hell-bent on his destruction, when he opens his mouth, they cannot even stand before him. They fall back. But Jesus, knowing the task that awaits him, he steps toward his fate. He, He accepts his role. He accepts what he is going to do. He's going to follow through on what he has come to do. And so Peter, Brendan talked about this last week, Peter, his, his dear friend and disciple starts hacking away at this mob with his sword and Jesus stays his hand and he says to him, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? And he offers himself up to arrest. I, I love our Lord. Don't you? He, he suffers from all the same weaknesses we do, all the same infirmities, infirmities we do as a man. Yet when it comes to fulfilling his ultimate purpose in this world, he does not shrink back from the task. And he's arrested and he's put on trial. And in this trial we're returning to this week, we see him clearly reveal who he is. We read this last week, but the focus last week was on, on his relationship with Peter. So here we come from the betrayal to the trial. It says this in Mark chapter 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So following at a distance, Peter is watching all this. And Peter uh, is following this mob as they go through the night to this gathering of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers, and the scribes, 71 men, the, the leaders of Israel. Like, think of like the religious senate coming together in the middle of the night. Something's off about this, isn't it? There's something strange about this gathering. These are the respected leaders of the nation, but they're not gathering in daylight during the week. No, they're gathering at night here in this great stone hall. Some of them are seated. Some of them are standing uh, around the perimeter in a semicircle around the shackled Jesus. Verse 55 says, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. They're asking for testimony about him. Does anyone have a story they could tell about Jesus? Something to show what a criminal he is, to show the offenses that he's, he's brought against God and against Rome. Who has something to say about this Jesus? And it says that they could find no testimony against him. I can just imagine what this is like. They, they say, oh, someone says, I have a testimony. I have something to say about Jesus. I could bring a charge against him. I wonder what those, those uh, the stories would have been like. Now, typically in, in our society, when you have a criminal proceeding, you begin with some kind of charge, right? Evidence is then presented to back up that charge, and then a a conviction, if it's reached uh, by the judge or jury, they make a determination and offer a sentence of justice as specified by the law. In other words, you have to prove, right, that a crime was committed. You have to make a case, and then based on the determination of a fair trial, you carry out a specific consequence, and this makes sense to us. Like, we think in our modern sensibilities, this is how it should go, right? Innocent until proven guilty. But in this case, what we have is a group of people who are so committed not to a case, but to a consequence that they are, namely the death of Jesus Christ, that they are trying to build a case out of thin air and it's not going well for them. This is not an actual trial, by the way. 
You see, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jewish people, Rome had stripped them of their authority, their, their power to execute. They've been, the sword has been taken from them, so they cannot actually carry out this justice. So you can think of this like a, a preliminary hearing where they're trying to build a case against Jesus. What can we bring to the Roman authorities in order to condemn this man? So they begin with a consequence in mind, and from there they build a case. Pretty messed up, right? Pretty, pretty backwards. And so they they attempt to establish this case in which he can be both condemned under their religious law. If they can prove he claims to be equal with God, they they say that's blasphemy and he can can be condemned by their law. And then if they can also claim, more importantly to them, that he wants to be king, then he's a threat to Rome, he's a revolutionary, he's a traitor, and he should be executed, deserving of death. He is a rebel and a rival to Caesar. So this is completely backwards as they have this goal in mind. And, and now in order to fulfill that goal, they call people up. Come on, tell us something about Jesus. Give us testimony. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony, but they found none. And nobody can offer anything convincing to condemn him. And I, I can only imagine some of the witnesses that they brought up, people coming up and saying things like, he's a rebel. Well, why is he a rebel? Well, he violated the Sabbath. Well, how? Well, by miraculously healing people. Okay. I saw him one day as he was walking through town, going somewhere to, he he touched this unclean woman, this woman who was unclean for for 18 years and he's not allowed to touch her. Oh, wow, that's something. Then what happened? Well, she was made clean. She was healed completely. She was restored. What kind of testimony would they they bring against Jesus? Oh, I saw Jesus talk to demons. He was just talking to them in, in these demonic people. And then what happened? The demons fled. And people who were completely out of their minds were restored to peace and sanity. I don't know what kind of witnesses they brought up, but if there were any actual witnesses, honest witnesses about what Jesus had been doing and what he had done, there would be no case to be made against the Lord. And they are frustrated in this gathering that nobody has anything convincing to say against him. No one certainly has brought any testimony worthy of death. So they begin to make up falsehoods, yet they are unable to keep their story straight. It says in verse 56, Many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Jesus never said that. This is just a blatant lie. He didn't say that. He correctly prophesied the destruction of the temple, which does happen, by the way, in 70 A.D., And he also talked about his own body as saying that if they destroy this temple in three days, it it will be raised. He he was talking about his own death and resurrection, but he said that they would destroy. He never said that he would destroy. And yet they're trying to pin this on him because if they can declare him a blasphemer against God and also that he wants to destroy the temple, they've got him. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. I want you to just put yourself there in that room in that moment. What do you think Jesus is feeling as, as he's silently watching all this? Is not one friend of his is in that room, not one uh, person to back him up. He has no defense team. He is simply on his own, surrounded by people who are hell-bent on his destruction. And he is hearing lie after lie being said about him. What would that be like? Can you imagine what that would be like? This is, this is a sham. This is a mockery of a hearing. 
Jesus has done nothing to deserve condemnation. This is completely unjust, and there's no one there to defend him, and he has not yet opened his mouth to defend himself. And not only is this unjust based on our modern sensibilities, we might look back at this and think, well, maybe this is just how they did things, and no, no. This is an illegal hearing according to the Jewish law. Why is this illegal? Well, according to the Mishnah, the document that regulated the procedures of the Sanhedrin, this court, they were not allowed to meet at night. So that's one strike against them. They were not supposed to meet during great feasts like Passover, another strike against them. Witnesses would be examined one at a time while others were outside of the room so that they would not overhear one another's testimony, another strike against them. The verdict was to be elicited one at a time from the members of the Sanhedrin. They'd go from youngest to oldest saying, I think guilty, I think not guilty, I think guilty, I think not guilty until they reach an agreement. Certainly, a verdict was not to be delivered by a shouting mob, which is what we'll see in just a moment. And most importantly, if the verdict was death, the court would be required to wait a full day, 24 hours, before carrying out that verdict on, on, on the assumption that it was possible that more evidence could be presented. Or maybe a move of mercy would come over the court and they would change course. But we know that's not what happened. This is an illegal, unjust, and cruel trial against Jesus. But so far, even when everything is stacked against Jesus, they have not been able to accomplish their purpose. They have nothing to condemn him by until this moment. Verse 60. And the high priest, it seems like he's had enough of all this. He's overseeing this and it's not going well for him. It's not going as he intended. And he then stands up and he takes over. And it says, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and he made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? In Luke's gospel, he says, I adjure you. Answer the question, yes or no. Already this question has been answered for anyone who's been paying attention. Already on three occasions in Jesus's ministry, God the Father has thundered over his son, this is my son. He has spoken out loud, confirming who Jesus is. Remember his baptism. This is my beloved son in front of a great crowd of people. They hear it. Remember his transfiguration as he's on a mountain and God says the same thing over his son. And then there's another unusual case in which God speaks, God the Father speaks over his son in John chapter 12. You might forget this one, but this very week, Jesus is in Jerusalem for Passover. And he says something for the sake of the crowds. He says, he prays to heaven and he says, Father, glorify your name glorify your name. And then suddenly this loud, thunderous voice thunders over Jesus and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. And it says that many hear it, but others who don't want to hear it or or want to dismiss it, or maybe just don't have the spiritual ears to hear, they say, what was all that thunder? What was that? God the Father has already spoken out loud over Jesus who he is. Jesus has already displayed this in his public ministry. He has already answered this question clearly, and this is not the first time. In John 5, 18, it says that the religious leaders plotted to kill Jesus because he claimed God was his father and made himself equal with God. In John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the father are one. We are one. We need only look at the Jews' reaction to that statement to know what he was claiming. He was claiming to be God. 
Why, why do I say that? Well, they picked up stones and tried to execute him there on the spot for this very reason. It says, you, a mere man, claim to be God. That's what they heard from Jesus. That's John 10, 33. His hearers understood exactly what he was claiming. Uh, pay no attention to these notions out there that Jesus never claimed divinity and was just some kind of moral teacher. No, here he says, I and the Father are one, and they pick up stones to kill him. He's not saying something insignificant there at all. And Jesus is declaring that he and the Father are of one nature and one essence. In John 8, 58, he says something that, that was just earth-shattering to those that heard it. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, what does he say? I am. I am. This is a reference to Exodus 3.14, when God reveals himself to Moses as I am. And his Jewish brethren who hear this statement, they respond again by taking up stones to kill him for blasphemy as the Mosaic law in Leviticus 24.16 gave them permission to do. He has called himself I am Yahweh. He has called himself by the name of God Almighty. He has claimed authority to forgive sins. And though he's often masked his identity as the Messiah, now his life is on the line and his time has come. And, and, and this question is before him, are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? Again, the priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Feel the tension there. It's say no and live. Say yes and die. What would you do? What would you do? Now, if this is just a hoax, if this is something that Jesus and his followers got excited about, and then at this point you would realize it's a bad idea, right? Like maybe now is the time to turn back. Some of you, you're convinced that you would be willing to stand before any kind of oppression and even a firing squad and, and not relent from your commitment to Jesus. And I believe there are many here in this room who have that firm conviction. But what if you knew it was a lie? What if it, you knew it was made up? Say no and live. Say yes and die. Now is the time for Jesus to relent from this insane commitment to this idea that he might be divine unless it's true. Only an absolute madman would stand through this mockery of a trial silently and then, as it's been going terribly through these accusations, he then stands and he incriminates himself. Incriminates himself, not just subtly, but very clearly. This is the time to give up, Jesus, unless it's true. And Jesus, knowing that the only response to this answer that he's going to give will be his own torture and death, he will not deny himself, he will not lie. In verse 62, Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is explosive. The high priest isn't even asking him this. The high priest would probably have some idea that a Messiah was coming, a king, someone from the line of David to come and free them from Rome someone to fight, an ordinary man who is more than ordinary, a king that was coming, but a human king. And he's asking Jesus, do you think you're that guy? Do you think you're the Messiah, the Christ? And in Jesus's answer, he doesn't just say, yes, I'm that guy. He gives an answer that's way more than he even needs to give in this moment. He's saying, yes, I am that promised Messiah. I am the prophesied one come to bring salvation. But then using his, his favorite nickname for himself, from the scriptures, he says that he is the one prophesied by Daniel, the son of man, Daniel 7, 13. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, 
And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus could have given himself any other name. Yes, I'm the son of David. Yes, I'm the king of the Jews. No, he says, I'm the son of man. I am coming to bring judgment upon the world. I am coming from the kingdom of heaven and I am the king. He is divine. He is the ancient of days returning to judge the world, fully man, yes, but fully God. And the response to this is explosive. It says the high priest tore his garments and he said, what further witnesses do you need? He knows what Jesus is claiming. And he says, you've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? This, this tearing of the clothes, it's weird to us. This, this would ordinarily in this culture be like a sign of grief, but this is not grief. This is animalistic rage and joy that he's finally got him. And he rips open his shirt and he cries out condemnation for blasphemy, an affront against God by making himself equal with God. And it says they all condemned him as deserving death. Anyone who heard this heard him in crystal clarity, claiming to be the son of God. Yet not one person in this room, not one person in that crowd stops for a moment to think, what if it's true? What if it's true? Instead, they stand up and they cry out in a mad frenzy. In their eyes, he's just signed his death warrant and they begin to then mercilessly assault him physically and verbally. Verse 65, and some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy, prophesy. Can you picture that? If you can, I want you to, for a moment, take your mind to being in Jesus's position. Suddenly, a crowd of angry men, these people who are supposed to be the respected leaders of a nation, they start grabbing him, pulling out his beard, spitting in his face, covering his eyes, striking him again and again. These are men full of wickedness, the youngest among them stepping up to show their masculine strength as they pummel Jesus, the Christ, as hard as they can. Jesus is surrounded and terrorized. He's beaten, he's brutalized, and there are no witnesses. There is no one there to help him. I wonder what Jesus would feel here. Helpless? Angry? I don't know about you. I've been struck in the face before. Probably many of you have. And the shock and the emotion that can come from even just one punch, it is overwhelming. And here Jesus is taking blow after blow. He is battered. His, his nose and his mouth are bloodied from the beating and absolutely nothing he can do, or I should say will do, will stop this merciless attack as these holy men hurl out insults, mockery, and true blasphemy. That's the, the irony of this. True blasphemy against the Son. And so mocking, they shout out to the, the blindfolded Jesus, prophesy, who just hit you? As they strike him in the face. Little do they know. They, they don't understand. Jesus has already prophesied this. He's already said that the son of man will be handed over to wicked men who will kill him. And here it is happening. Prophesy? He already has. And, and it says then they, they take him to the guards. They hand him over to move him along. Uh, when morning comes, he's, he's enduring beatings all night. And when morning comes, he'll be paraded to the Roman authorities. But here it says the guards received him with blows. They're doing this to God. 
They're doing this to God because he told the truth. Some of you in your life, you can identify with Jesus. You've been attacked, you've been brutalized, you've been lied about, you've been abused and persecuted, and you can't even bring your imagination to what Jesus is going through in this moment. You can't go there in your mind because to go there is just uh, too painful and you don't dare bring up those thoughts. Why do these things happen in this world? Have you ever asked yourself that? Like, why is this world so painful? What is this darkness that they would do this to the Son of God? And, and the reason Scripture gives is it's because of sin. It's because of sin, the brokenness of our humanity. And as, as holy God, Jesus came to judge this sin. He came to set right this kind of abuse and violence to bring healing and restoration. And he identifies with you in your suffering. You need to know this. God came and made himself helpless to identify with us in our own weakness. As he's being battered, as he's being abused, as he's being struck, he knows what you've been through. He's not far off. He's not a God who doesn't understand. He knows what you're going through and he knows what causes it and he as righteous judge has come to address it. He's come to judge the sin. Some of you, uh, like me this week, I was seeing myself more in the crowd. This frenzy of, of wicked men who are attacking Jesus. You know that in some sense, in the way that you live, in the way that we live, we hurl insults at God Almighty. We recoil at his authority. We wanna do anything, face the truth of our condition, even if it means hurling insults at God. Why? Why do we do that? Again, the answer is it's because of sin, this tendency in our nature and in our choices to want to be on the throne, to put ourselves in the place of God. And Jesus came to address this sin, to judge this sin. We've been sinned and we've been sinned against and Jesus came to address both and he came as judge. He came as judge and he took our judgment. He took our condemnation the Christ came to take our condemnation. We'll see that soon in, in the coming weeks through the cross, how he accomplished that. But Jesus came to save sinners. The penalty that is due for the sin, what it costs, he took it upon himself when we could not possibly afford it. He came and dwelt among us and put on flesh and he died for us. His name is Jesus and he is God. And only by being God would he have been able to accomplish this, to pay the penalty, the sufficient penalty for the sins of the world. If Jesus was some kind of just created being, if he, he was not God, he could not pay the infinite penalty required for sin against an infinite God, but he did. Only God could take on the sins of the world, die and be resurrected, proving his victory over sin and death, and he has. Is Jesus God? Yes. Jesus declared himself to be God. His, his followers believed him to be God and salvation is possible only because Jesus is God. Jesus is God incarnate, the eternal alpha and omega God and savior. There's no room for a casual response to this. We started with this question of who do you say that Jesus is? In light of this, in light of what he's come to do, who do you say that he is? Is he a madman or is he the Lord? Is he crazy? Or is he the Christ? And if he's crazy, that change, excuse me, if he's the Christ, that changes absolutely everything, doesn't it? If he's crazy, discard it. Move along with your life. But if he's Christ, it changes everything. What does it change? The band, you can come on up. What does it change? For the believer, you're thinking to yourself, I've heard this before, I know the story, it's, it's very familiar. What does this change for us? If we, this is the first thing it changes, if we, 
though deserving of judgment, have received mercy at the expense of Jesus, the judge, then we can no longer sit in judgment over others. If we've received mercy at the hands of the judge, if he, the righteous judge, took our judgment upon himself, then we can no longer stand in a, placement, a place of judgment over others. So the question for us to, to apply this to our lives this morning is, are you living in judgment over others? Or have you grasped that he has taken your judgment upon himself to offer you unmerited grace and favor? Secondly, if Jesus came and, and absorbed and endured such brutality to forgive, how then can we withhold forgiveness from others? Is there anyone this morning that you need to forgive? That you're holding on to resentment against? Cease that violence that you're committing in your mind against others. And forgive as you've been forgiven in Christ. What does it change? What does it change? If he's the, the Christ, stop judging yourself. Stop judging yourself. Friends, brothers and sisters, look at me for just a moment. If you're in Christ, if you know him, your trial is over. Your trial has been decided. A judgment has been passed down and Jesus said, put it on me. What that means is that you're free. You are no longer condemned in your sin. And when Satan comes to harass you and to condemn you, you can say to him in response, my trial has been decided. My judgment has been brought down and my savior bore it on himself. And lastly, if Jesus came to, to be not just a champion over suffering, but he also came to be a companion in our suffering, that means that if you've been oppressed, marginalized, abused, he knows what that's like, and he came not just to set that right, but to, to be with you in it, even as you suffer. You know that you have a high priest who is not far off, who identifies with the oppressed and the hurting. And we as Christians, if that's not your situation, as we behold the goodness of Jesus and that he would hang from a tree for us, that should cause us to look with compassion on those who are hurting and broken and, and it should change us as we behold what he has done and the way he identified with people who are broken and hurting and needy as we look upon him, that, that turns our hearts outward towards those that are suffering around us. Christian, do you see the suffering around you and will you be like Christ to those that are hurting? Will you draw near to them? We're gonna sing a song in response. You can sit and listen for a moment. This is a new song to our congregation, but as you're ready, you can also stand with us and sing as we behold our King.